I'm Dr. Sky Katz of Scott from Health with Heart, and this podcast is a celebration of the purpose, capacity, and magic of the human body and its ability to heal and take us to new places. Join me on a journey exploring new aspects of medicine and healing for our collective well-being. To the best of my knowledge, we still don't know how homeopathy works. At best, we can call it energy medicine, and the scientific studies that have been done have shown that it works, and and there's tons about that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Health with Heart with me, Dr. Skye. I'm here in the studio today with the lovely Dr. Lindy Metz, a homeopath, who is going to share a little bit about her own journey in medicine or to healing and enlighten us about the tools and the approach of a homeopath to well-being and how that might aid and support a more allopathic way forward for people. I think that we're going to have to start right at the beginning because I'm embarrassed to say that whilst I have really strong memories of my mom taking me to a very, very hirsute homeopath called Dr. Pierre Lou as a child, who gave my sister and I what we called burping medicine, which was a powder that we drank frequently throughout the day. I don't know much about homeopathy and I would love to learn more. So I thought we would begin with your story and the roots of your calling to healing. Thank you, Sky. Yeah, I suppose I, I grew up in Simonstown, surrounded by nature and have, um, yeah, I've just always enjoyed being outdoors, enjoying nature. And we have uh, a few medical practitioners in our family. My uncle's a doctor, my aunt's a dentist, and sort of a sprinkling across the board. I sort of went a different route after school. I went traveling, always doing sort of short courses here and there on on healing. And um, yeah, when you're in Cape Town over a weekend, you can become an expert in many things. You can become a Reiki master or a massage professional. And I did many of those courses, but it never really dawned on me and and yeah, we can reflect on why that becoming a, a healer or a doctor was really an option. So I got into publishing. My mom worked for straight publishers for many years and then um, went off on her own. Um, we did the Baby Sense series of books. We did a number of gardening books and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it was after I'd moved to Johannesburg and it was at one of the baby expos, I got chatting to the guys from Pegasus. They do the homeopathic blue box. Many people know that and that's sort of your homeopathic first aid kit. And it's usually complexes of remedies that's good for anything from teething to, well, burping and gas and, <laughs> and everything in between. And there was something in that conversation that just made me sort of really dive into homeopathy and have a look at it. And I wasn't entirely satisfied with, with the work that I was doing. It was I was good at my job, but it had no soul. Uh, for me. And my mom and I had long conversations about it. You know, it was absolutely her passion. It's what got her up in the morning. And I had a look at the courses available and UJ and DUT are the two universities that offered homeopathy. And what I loved is that they were six-year master's degrees. So at the time, that was the exit qualification. You exited with a MTech in homeopathy. And the curriculum was very much based on on the med school curriculum. So pretty much what you guys did, along with a full year of dissection, which I found absolutely amazing. That was brilliant. What was your cadaver called? 
Oh, so it was tricky. We didn't give him a name because he um, he arrived with his wedding ring on, which was really, really unusual. So we were, you know, already there was a story to this man. It wasn't mm. just a cadaver. Mm. And maybe out of respect for that, like we didn't name him because it was quite real. But yeah, so, so that was unusual. Um, but we spent a year with him and we were incredibly grateful to him for everything that we learned and I think it's it's there we sort of you realize and maybe this is where homeopathy sort of comes in and and where its strength lies is no two people are the same and when you when you're sitting in a hall full of cadavers and everyone's dissecting you very quickly realize that genuinely no two people are the same uh, inside and out and so then the model arises of well you cannot treat two people the same so anyway the course was fantastic it, it was um yeah so I started at UJ did the did the master's degree and and subsequently started working at a pharmacy even and, before I stopped and how did you support yourself through your degree oh I was still doing the publishing stuff at okay. night yeah wow. so so being an older student you don't have the luxury of um yeah bunking at home and <laughs> having mom cook for you. Yes. So, um, so no, I was, I was studying in the mornings cause that's where my brain fires best and then working at night, um, and then studying full time during the day. So it was, it was a tough five years from six year on, it, it got a little bit easier cause then we, we spent quite a bit of time in clinic doing practical stuff. But even so then I, I switched from working in publishing to working at a pharmacy. It was at the uh, Kalani Pharmacy because they've got a huge homeopathic dispensary along with a, a very well-established allopathic section. So that was, it was super interesting as well. Tell us a little bit about that experience in the pharmacy. I would imagine you gathered a lot of insight. I did, I did because um, sort of I progressed through working in this pharmacy from from being there part-time as a, as a homeopath working underneath a, another homeopath or at least a homeopathic student all the way to finally managing the whole pharmacy um, along with pharmacists and getting to know how medical aids work, getting to know how pharmaceutical companies work. Mm. We won't <laughs> go was, there. No, we're not going to dive down that rabbit hole. It was sobering. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can't get around how much money drives many decisions that are made in that space. Mm. It's, it's not conspiracy, it's economics, you know. Uh, which is, it's sad because sometimes I, the patient makes decisions based on that as well. And would you say that this, the same economics apply in the, homeop in the homeopathic or more supplementary arena? Um, I, think, I think it does. You know, I think we, we try and paint it with a, with a far kinder brush. But I think it's very easy if you jump into the what's now known as the functional medicine field or integrative health, you know, we saw some of the scripts coming through there that are absolutely enormous. You know, we're talking sort of three, four, five thousand rand a month easily. Not and covered by medical aid mostly. Definitely not covered by medical yeah. aid. You know, some of the nappy coated products you'll you'll get some kind of a reimbursement for. But I think it's so important not to lose track of what it is that we're wanting to achieve. So maybe that's a good segue into the principles of of treating somebody homeopathically. I read on your website, and I think it resonates so much with the way that we practice in our practice, that lifestyle before a script, always. Absolutely. So um, there's that old adage that you apply to when you speak. Is it, 
is it kind? Is it true? Is it, is it necessary? necessary? And and I think sometimes we can apply, well, not sometimes, I think always we should apply the same to how we practice medicine. Mm. Is it as gentle as possible? Is it as effective as possible? And is it necessary? And I think sometimes it can be gentle, it can be super effective. I mean, I can justify giving you a script of about 10 to 15 supplements to take every day with very good reason. But is it necessary? Probably mm. not. And then definitely... And I mean, my colleagues tease me sometimes because I love taking on the patients where the main thing is that we do actually need to change their diet. We really do need to change how they go through their days. Because if you can fix that, you know, it's it's like a really positive domino effect. Everything else starts falling into place. The other modality that I really love bringing into it is, is breath work. Because, um, I mean, we had a patient just the other day where he wakes up being hypertensive and then that calms down through the day. He's a nose breather through the day, but snores viciously at night. Um, you know, so I just, I love bringing in so many different things into how I practice, but but absolutely, sort of, you've got to fix the diet. You have got to fix how the person's sleeping, and I think sleep's coming up a lot more now, and people are paying a lot more attention to it. Mm. And then movement as well, and I think we need to move away from exercise, exercise, to just, if we can just get people moving. moving. Yeah. And already the word movement, for some people, doesn't elicit that that sort of stress response. <laughs> just just yeah, move. It's, it's less frightening. Mm. about the remedies that you use and maybe a little bit about over-the-counter remedies that you can use. I once heard somebody allude to homeopathy as intentional medicine. Is that something that fits in the really diluted down remedies? Is that a fair comment? I like that. I've never heard that. I'm going to use that. Yes, I um, also liked it and it sat really well with me. I always think about those. Did you ever read that experiment with the photographs of the molecular structure of water under yeah. intention? Yeah. Um, and so I always think about that. So so first couple of things that we need to be super clear on. To the best of my knowledge, we still don't know how homeopathy works. At best, we can call it energy medicine. And the scientific studies that have been done have shown that it works. And, and there's tons about that, but we don't quite know how. And so the basic premise of how we choose remedies, and maybe this is where the intentionality comes in, is first you need to have a really good interview with your patient. Um, and we do take time. I mean, everyone knows it's like, oh gosh, I'm going to the homeopath. I need to sort of clear my morning. Um, <laughs> how, long, how long are your appointments? <laughs> so um, our initial appointment is is anything from an hour to an hour and a half. But that also varies. You know, if you're coming in with your child for the first time and the kid has a raging fever, we're not going to make you sit down there and go through your whole life history. It's mm. going to be pretty quick. So it's it's also relative. But, you know... In our practice, we see a lot of chronic cases, and every now and then we need to remind our patients that we can't actually treat your cold as so well. I, I'm actually probably, I, I can totally understand in an intentional medicine approach or an energetic medicine mm. approach in the acute context, but I saw on your website that you treat diabetes and metabolic syndrome and autoimmunity and yeah. all that sort of thing. Is that in conjunction with blood pressure lowering pills or insulins or so I think we can go back to the philosophy of of the gentlest and the most effective possible approach and so quite often we'll use homeopathic remedies in conjunction with um, supplements but again in homeopathy there's something called um, an obstacle to cure 
And I think quite often I've seen in practice where some people lose track of that. An obstacle to cure, for instance, for a diabetic person would be don't drink the Coke. Don't have the bag of chips. So we need to take care of that first. Mm. Otherwise, you can get the best indicated homeopathic remedy under the sun, and it's it's not going to do anything, much like the supplement's not going to do anything. And so, again, it's, it's, that, it's that thing of sort of looking at the whole person and looking at the whole case and not getting sort of lost in, in necessarily the script. And I, I'm often sort of co- almost coerced into writing a script for something just so that they have something to leave with. And these are more often new patients who don't know who they've landed in front of. <laughs> but how do you, I would imagine that somebody coming to a homeopath has a little bit more awareness already. And, and so maybe the battle is half won. But do you struggle to get people to put down the coke? I think it varies quite a lot. Um, I mean, I've had some patients who, they depending on their motivation, right? So if their intrinsic motivation is is solid, then it's so easy to get them to change behavior because these are behavior change things, right? And they will literally walk out of there and it's like going home and they stick to the stuff. And the really nice thing about lifestyle interventions, as you know, is you actually start seeing results pretty quickly. And then I've had patients sitting in front of me and I'll be like, okay, you know, we've gotten particular test results back. So it means you need to cut out X. And they'll just look at me blankly and go, no. I'm like, okay and then you have to work around it right you've got to meet the patient where they're at Mm. and you know that actually you're just slowly slowly massaging that person into a place where watering one day exactly they'll they'll feel a little bit stronger and they'll be able to make a change and it's always going to be incremental I think homeopaths have a double whammy when it comes to scripting because like you say people like walking away with with something, it's something tangible. And I think maybe there the placebo effect comes in and, and homeopathy and placebo effect, you can Google that. And I feel and like I intentional medicine sounds much better much than better. placebo. I like that. We're going to own that one. I, th- I think it's similar. I mean, I remember reading studies in the six, that were done in the 60s of people post-op comparing morphine to saline that was imbued with magical properties. Mm. And, and the outcomes were really similar. Mm. So I think the, the mind-body connection is really strong. Oh, it's massive. Yeah. It's absolutely massive. Um, the other struggle that we sometimes have is, and I think this is where the, the sort of functional med thing has come in, and homeopaths, because we don't walk out of school with a script pad in our hand. You know, I think the, the conventional GPs, it's, it's, it's very much the... It's you pharmaceutical medicine. It's pharmaceutical medicine, absolutely. Mm. It's, this is your condition. This is, you know, the options for whatever medications we're going to give you. We've got hundreds of remedies that we could possibly prescribe and no two people are going to get the same remedy. But now what's happened is with the supplement industry doing as well as it is, and I mean it's booming globally, is as soon as you send a patient out of the rooms with only a homeopathic remedy, they sort of look at you as if you're mad. And so it's it's not You mean this, it's not enough? It's not enough. It's like surely these little sugar pills are not going to affect any kind of change. And then you're sitting with, well, okay, I know this remedy is really well indicated. Do I send them off with another supplement? So there's also a conversation to be had. And it's, it's like you said, it's such a mindset. And just educating the patients as well. Do you find that the people that are more invested in, not invested, but who have more faith in the remedy do better? I mean, that would probably, that would be an interesting study. It would be an interesting study. Um, and I mean, it's a conversation I often had, especially in the pharmacy, because you, you know, it's, it's quick fire. 
and especially people who don't know it. And often the pharmacists would actually send people over to what we affectionately called the dark side. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when they were like, oh, I've got nothing for you. Go speak to the homeopaths. Yeah. And they, so they come in completely clueless about homeopathy. And we do a, a sort of a brief description of sort of like super dilute medicines. And you can never say perfectly safe because sometimes you can elicit an adverse reaction. That really it's happens. fleeting. It does. Sometimes you see it, especially with skin conditions. And okay. I mean, we can chat a little bit about skin and homeopathy. We love skin conditions because from a homeopathic perspective, it's it's the body pushing things out onto the surface, which you can imagine it's it's far more preferable having something pushed out onto the surface that you can see than something sort of mingling and, and festering on the inside of the body. So quite often you'll get kids, for instance, who had eczema as a kid, lots of cortisone, that sort of progressed into developing asthma, you finally see the asthmatic patient in their mid-30s, mm. treat that, and lo and behold, the eczema comes back. So, I mean, you could you could regard that as an adverse event, but but sort of philosophically from a homeopathic point of view is from inwards outwards. That's the correct direction of healing for us. But you'll have, because you've taken a full history, you can brief the patient and say, listen, probably we can expect this to happen. And like with anything, you you ameliorate throughout. You never ever want the patient to suffer. And so there are ways and means sort of around that, but but certainly sort of it's it's healing on an incredibly deep level when you when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it. Is there a correlation between gut and skin in homeopathy in the same way that there is with functional medicine? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we talk no, a lot about the microbiome on this it. podcast. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's linked to everything, right? Find me, find me a health condition that you can't link gut health to, and mm. then you link the gut health to what it is that we're eating, and not just what we're eating, but how we're moving, to your emotional well-being. It, it all goes back to the gut. Let's talk about food and food intolerances. How do you decide what somebody should eliminate? Do you have a yeah. sort of blanket protocol, or do you? Well, no, because people are different, so we do test. Um, and look, the tests are pricey, so if people can't test, then, then you know, I'd say let's look at the three big things, and usually that's gluten, dairy, and eggs. And if someone can't afford the testing, then we'll eliminate that for five to six weeks and do a very, very slow reintroduction to see how the body responds. And so that would be an intolerance. Um, if we do the testing, um, there are a couple of different companies that we use, and you can test anything up to 300 different foods. And you can get quite nuanced about sort of what it is that the person needs to eliminate. And it's oftentimes foods that you don't necessarily suspect. And then, of course, there are allergies as well. So, so depending on how the case presents... We may just do food allergy testing first, um, or then we may go down the, the food intolerance route. And then it really just depends on, on the patient and sort of reintroducing those foods. We often find, especially women in the middle age, they, they get to a point and suddenly they can't lose the weight. They're sort of heading into perimenopause. You know, things have just changed. Obviously, you look at the hormones, but you look at the foods as well. Um, and our bodies are changing constantly. You know, this is also a conversation we have to have with our patients is what you got away with in your mid-20s is different you from your mid-30s. It's going to be different as you age. Do you prescribe hormones? I know. It's not in our scope of practice. That must be frustrating because the homeopaths that I know, many of them have done the I4M training, American functional medicine courses, and they're more knowledgeable than your average GP in this space. And so that must be very frustrating. Is there room for that to change? Is there a voice from homeopathy for that to change? 
what are the obstacles there around more integration and crossover with allopathic? Oof. Um, so we learned from an early age as homeopaths. Um, and it's it's strange how the regulations were written. And I don't want to get too political about it. But, I mean, essentially, technically speaking, you and I will never be able to practice in the same rooms. So I know that rule. We can't even share a room. No, it's bizarre. And we should be working together. Completely. Yeah. So so for me, it, it's, it is frustrating. and Just for the people listening to... Mm. To clarify that, it means that we cannot even share an office. There is a rule in the HPCSA that an, an allopathic prescriber is not allowed to share rooms or premises with... A receptionist filing an entrance. You cannot even share a same entrance. With an allied professional. Separate. Yeah. 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 And so, that, that would include what? Home, homeopaths? Homeopaths, chiropractors, uh, osteopaths, Unani tip practitioners, um, Chinese massage medicine. therapists, traditional Chinese um, therapists, um, phytotherapists. Yeah, anything on the on the sort of more natural anything side in the of dark things. side. Anything <laughs> on the dark side. <laughs> but but I mean we we love collaborating with people, and I'm of the mind that I'm never going to know everything, and I'm never going to be able to have all the answers. For any particular patient. And so I think it's really important to collaborate. And fine, if we can't be in the same rooms, I'm not going to let that stop me. It's, it's, I love chatting with other practitioners mm. and just hearing other people's view on, on how to sort of approach a case. Because as much as your patients are all different, your practitioners are all different. And I mean, this is a bit of a joke in, in homeopathic circles is you can have the same presenting case and you might prescribe two completely different remedies. Mm. Um, having heard the same stuff, but you, you pick up on different nuances, you have different fields of experience. And, you know, well, I so think that's probably true. Well, that's certainly true in, in our field as well. If you go to 10 GPs, you'll get 10 different scripts and 10 different approaches, yeah. um, which makes practicing with other different humans all the more empowering actually oh absolutely yeah i know there are three homeopaths in your practice mm. so i'm with i'm with dr Buerta and dr davidson and yeah. do you all have a different niche we are do you, are you quite different in oh, your prescribing so different um there's overlaps um but we often we often joke that you know again we can approach cases and i love when we sort of come together in the dispensary and there's that moment of like you see a patient and it's it's a bit of a head scratcher and just to hear how they would approach it or how would I would approach it. Um, I love that kind of collaboration. Um, Dr. Boot, I, I sort of affectionately always said that the higher grade cases go to her. She's, um, she's, she's sort of the ultimate thinking doctor and a real sleuth uh, when it comes to problem solving, complicated cases and patients who've been refractory to, you know, sort of other treatments and things. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. Dr. Davidson is brilliant with kids I mean it's just phenomenal seeing her she does um neuro assessments on them um it's sort of a, a mini EEG in in the rooms um I read about that on your website mm, that's that's super powerful stuff is that in the context of behavioral stuff or attention deficit disorder all of the above okay yeah so focus and concentration sleep um ADHD what's nice about the the neuro assessment is it just gives us a bit of a glimpse under the hood because you know you can have two patients who present with the similar behaviors but there's something else driving that behavior and quite often with these kids there'd be massive sleep deprivation or it's interesting the the the, the last podcast that I did it was with Alison Bentley and she was saying that any child diagnosed with ADHD should have a sleep 
assessment or just interrogation first? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many of the kids that come in and, and then they haven't even been diagnosed with ADHD yet, they're not sleeping enough. Mm. So, yeah, I want the next blog on, on our site to be just, just sleep guidelines for parents because I think oftentimes, you know, especially sort of everyone knows kids up to sort of five, six, they need like tons of sleep and then somehow something happened where people are like, oh, they're seven, they're eight, they can get away with less. I'm like, hmm. no, actually even yeah. your 16-year-old still needs like Well, they've got massive hours. adenoids and tonsils and they're mouth breathing and mm. having apneas. Absolutely. So, yeah. so what the test allows us to see is, and it differentiates between a sleep disorder, so is the kid not going through the, the proper cycles of sleep, um, or is there just not enough? I mean, that can happen at the interview stage. Yeah. Is is sort of actually, you know, this kid's only getting eight hours. I'm like, well, that's three hours short mm. um, for a developing brain. That's going to have a massive effect. I mean, Fun you know attention. what you feel like after one rough night, yeah. right? I mean, I, I don't do well on, 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 uh, on little sleep. On sleep deprivation. Uh, some people get away with it for a few days, but I don't. Um, and so I'm just, yeah, not running on, on all cylinders. And now you look at a child who's having to focus, probably more than most of us need to focus in mm. the day. And of course, they're going to get agitated. Of course, they're going to start moving around. So sleep's the first thing we look at. And then, of course, diet. But then it also allows us to see different brain types. So then one of them, one of them is called sort of a low beta amplitude brain, where it's the people who tend to ruminate quite a lot. They also happen to be the problem solvers because it's that it's that rumination that sort of gets you really sort of absorbed in something. Exactly. Um, but when that goes south is when that becomes a really negative internal dialogue. It's it's the same process. You're just processing different things. And then the beautiful supplements that you can help sort of that brain firstly yeah sleep again but yeah other things that we can then that we can then help that little brain with. treat a lot of mental disease we do so so and lots of anxiety yeah, lots of depression I, I think depression that's refractory to allopathic treatment is so prevalent and I think that we're often doing more harm than good with some of the scripts that we write well it's it's one of those disease processes where you have to pay attention to how the person got there right yeah. and um I mean it's interesting I can't remember if if you touched on this with your conversation with Ela, but we've spoken a lot about it in the in breath work is how depression is it's not a pathology in the short term it's 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 a very protective mechanism of the body and it's that sort of turning inward that sometimes you really 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 need and it's when it progresses beyond a certain point and that point's going to be different for different people where you really do start then needing to sort of pay attention and and help the person out of that space through any number of means the same thing can be said for inflammation mm. you know it's a life-saving mechanism in our body, but it's when it goes on for too long. And so this is, again, where not just the supplementation, but where homeopathics come in so powerfully. You know, if we look at grief, and I think sometimes grief can turn into a prolonged phase of, of depression, as we have beautiful remedies to help people process grief and go through the stages of grief. You still have to do the work, but it's almost like the remedies just open the door slightly to make it a little bit easier. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think medicating grief is something that I often talk about with my colleagues because there's a reflex these days to do that. And I think it's new. I don't know if that was there a generation ago. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's along with this this sort of zeitgeist of everything, you know, the... The Instagram world, where everything has to be pretty and perfect and lovely and positive. And it's like, it's not. Yeah. Life is messy, messy and can get really janky sometimes. And you got to, that's that's part of our growth, right? Is, is finding our ways through that. Undulating. It's, yeah, sort of like also with, with our kids is keeping them sort of happy all the time. That's, that's not realistic. It's not life, certainly in the world that we're living in at the moment. You touched a little bit, I think, I don't know if it was in, a, in an interview that I read with you, on the potential for homeopaths to contribute in the, in the public health space. It's very clear that there's a divide there too. Okay, so sort of halfway through my homeopathic training, and, and we had we had really nice exposures. We did a trip up to Botswana. Um, that we did actually with with nurses and emergency responders. It sounded like a bad joke at one stage, like a homeopath, a nurse, and a <laughs> an emergency responder walk into a bar. But it was it was a beautiful experience. I mean, we we just did sort of lifestyle interviews and that kind of thing. But but just interacting with communities and in our practical component of our training, there's a clinic in Kula Village in Saint Lucia. They've just opened another one in the Eastern Cape. Uh, we had a satellite clinic in Soweto, and we've got one in Vicyards. Government clinics? No, no, no. Homeopathic, Homeopathic clinics, clinics. Sponsored by, um, and I stand to be corrected, but I think partially UJ. The two cooler clinics are, are privately sponsored by a Swiss company, and there are many of the local homeopathic suppliers who also support those two clinics, Fusion and Natura, the two that I know of. So we get a lot of our practical experience there. But Vicyards is not a rural setting, but it's certainly we're, we're dealing with the communities who live in Berea and Bears Valley. There is no money there. There is precious little access to healthcare. And then the two cooler clinics are, are very much rural clinics. And so that to me is public health um, in, in our setting in mm. South Africa, you know. And to see the results that we get with patients there and there are no supplements anywhere near. Your case taking also is quite limited. So you've got to be pretty sharp on the kinds of questions that I mean, you're with asking. Language and time. Language and time. Yeah, those are the two factors. Um, at Kula, and I'm, I'm guessing I've, I've not been to the one in the Eastern Cape, but but certainly the one um, in Saint Lucia, we have translators. So every student goes in with a translator. Um, so even there, um, especially in the beginning, it was like, okay, what's getting lost in translation? Mm. Um, but obviously, as as the translators get more experience in the kinds of questions that we're asking and the type of information that it is that we're trying to elicit, they they get a lot more nuanced with with how they're translating. So um, and then even while I was at UJ, um, it was part of my motivation for what I chose as my master's. Uh, topic. I wanted to go off on a tangent about proving that homeopathy is like the perfect modality for public healthcare because it's accessible, it's cheap, mm. uh, it's effective, it's gentle, and we, you know, we, we get to bring in all the other aspects, uh, the lifestyle stuff that we spoke about. Um, my supervisor very kindly reminded me that it was not a PhD but just a master's, <laughs> and that I should calm tone down. it down. Just calm down. <laughs> we actually, we actually want you out of here. Um, <laughs> But what we did do is is what I then sort of 
tried to do with my masters is kind of go, okay, there's this perception that homeopathy is, there was a study that came out of Australia, it was for the worried well. So in other words, for your affluent white folks, basically. And I think that's a, it's a perception that persists. Mm. So what I set out to do with my masters is ask the question, who is it that homeopaths in Hauteng see? And, and what I love about as an ex-Captonian, I probably will never move back there. I, I love Joburg and the richness of the culture here and the richness of the people here um, and that there is space for everyone. Mm. So I was like, okay, so we chose six practices scattered throughout the province to ask the question, who is it that homeopaths are seeing? Um, and it literally was all the way from Soweto to Shoshongue to Santon. Um, we had a we had a really nice sort of sample, yeah. And I can't remember the exact figures, but basically I wanted to call the, the dissertation as if you build it, they will come. And it was a matter of if there is a homeopath in a community, people will come and see the mm. homeopath because they need health care. Mm. They don't care where that health care is coming from. And I think it's also important to mention that we leave Varsity as primary health care diagnosticians. From a technical point of view, you and I can approach the case with a similar knowledge base. Mm. Obviously, the way we prescribe is just going to be quite different. Um, but even now, there seems to be more overlap. More overlap. Yeah. So, yeah, from a primary healthcare diagnostic point of view, we are completely capable of looking at, at any case um, and then either treating or referring. And so we find it frustrating that there is no government support for us to be incorporated in the public health care system. I think we both read recently about some changes being made in these laws that held certain practitioners to certain regulations but excluded traditional African healers. It's all a bit of a, um, I find very flowery language for the regulations that are being promulgated at the moment or at least tabled. It, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense and the, the previous round of regulations, homeopaths and traditional African healers were very much in the same mix. So, and you know, this is where I get frustrated when politics start mixing too with, much with, with, medicine. with what it is that mm. we're trying to do. We're trying mm. to, to help people and to heal people and, and, yeah, and to then, keep people well. Exactly. little bit about your own daily practice what sustains you what keeps you so vital ah what keeps you forging on um I think it's really important that we practice what we preach and having said that also having compassion for when people fall off the wagon which we also do so in a perfect world <laughs> my um my morning practices um well I started getting into morning pages which is I forget the author's uh, Julia Cameron she wrote the the artist's way and so I'm dabbling with that at the moment um and I'm finding that quite interesting so you have to write three pages every, every morning. morning I think Tim Ferriss also sort of re reignited that and I'm finding it almost as effective as a 20-minute meditation, just in terms of sort of clearing the mind and, mm. and heading into the day. Do you uh, have an intention before you write, or is it just pure stream of consciousness? And I'm trying to stick with the whole pure stream of consciousness okay. thing and see sort of what comes up. And it's been anything from sort of just random drivel to proper problem solving mm. like <laughs> this is this is at the forefront of my mind at the moment which is quite different from meditation mm. 
but the the what I walk out with at the end of that 20 minutes or half an hour is also very very clear calm mind mm. so for me I need to start my day quietly um, I need at least half an hour to an hour of quiet um, I like to do a bit of yoga before the day starts um, with either the meditation or the morning pages and then it's it's getting the family going and then yeah I really love exercising so um Anything from weight training to running to swimming, uh, I try and build a bit of variation in there. I love cooking, which um, makes it very challenging when I sit with a patient who hates cooking. It's like, but but it's so nice. <laughs> what do you love to cook? Oh gosh, anything. Uh, I love experiencing with flavors and textures, and yeah, my happy space is in the kitchen. Don't expect anything to come out in a hurry, which is which is why weekdays are, are sort of challenging. Um, getting kids to bed on time. But um, yeah, I love playing in the kitchen. Just uh, it's it's a real joy for me. But also, it's I find it quite grounding. Yeah, hiking is another thing that I absolutely love doing. And Joburg, uh, ironically, you know, people f- from Cape Town are like, "Don't you miss Cape Town?" I'm like, yeah, sure, I miss running up the mountain. But there's so much nature in and around Joburg that um, yeah, I really enjoy that. What sort of medicine did your mom give you as a child? No, that was that was sort of run-of-the-mill allopathic stuff, but I don't okay. think we were terribly sickly. I think it had a lot to do with growing up in Simonstown. Yes. I know I did have my tonsils out. Bad homeopath. What happened um, after that? Oh, I was absolutely fine. Um, <laughs> you know, you have tonsillitis. torn in conversation. I know, right? You had tonsillitis enough times, and it was very much, I think, I was. it, it was what you did. Like, women went through a phase of having hysterectomies, yes. and kids went through a phase of having, having tonsillectomies. Yeah, I lost exactly. mine at six. Oh, <laughs> and I'll never, my only memory there is that all my friends got custard and jelly, and I got guava juice. And that nurse's ears are still burning because With sulfur that's dioxide. mean, man. <laughs> Did we dare to talk about vaccinations? I've heard the word no-sode being thrown around. And I think in the post-COVID era, there's definitely a lot more awareness around or, or questioning around the impact of vaccines. Yes. Okay. So we won't go too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, but like with vaccines, I like to take a measured approach, like with everything else. And again, don't throw the baby out with the wild water. water. So yes, there's a time and a place, I think. But homeopathy does also have a lot to offer in, in the vaccine arena. And it's it's then interesting to see, sort of go back to the philosophy of how homeopathics work in the body. And so quite differently from pharmaceutical agents where sort of you can almost think as a a molecule that you're prescribing as a bit of a jackhammer in the body. There's no choice. Like it, it, it forces the body to go into a particular action. Reactions are taking place. Whereas a homeopathic remedy, the remedy itself doesn't do anything. We're working on a far subtler level where the remedy is eliciting a response in the body. And that response is always to bring the body back into balance. And so, you know, again, it's just a far gentler approach. So when we look at how remedies are made, and this is where the nosodes come in. So a nosode is a remedy that would be made from a disease agent. Like a vaccine, I mean, the principle of a vaccine. Yeah, yes. exactly, exactly. But just again, it's, it's, it's the sort of feather approach as opposed to the sledgehammer approach. It's something like belladonna. So belladonna is a, it's a plant, it's a flower. If you give that to someone, you will likely kill them in its, in its crude form. Um, before they die, they will have crazy fevers, headaches, sweating. It's yeah. 
So from a homeopathic point of view, if we take that substance and we dilute it like crazy, crazy, crazy many times, uh, yes, to the point where under a microscope you cannot really see that anymore. That will, if, if a child, for instance, presents with a fever, and I always love using the example of a baby with a fever, because there's no placebo effect there. You know, you pop a couple of pileos of belladonna uh, in the child who presents with a similar picture that that crude substance mm. would, would create. So a very feverish child, you give them a couple of pileos, and literally that fever breaks in sometimes minutes, never mind never mind hours. So that's that's sort of what we're looking at, is that um, we call it a homeopathic picture. So the remedy has a picture and you want that picture to match what the patient is presenting with. young mothers who would be interested in experimenting with this or who might not have the resources to come and see a homeopath yes. for many hours <laughs> um, <laughs> what's a good point of departure the, is it the blue box I suppose the blue box is great you know I know you can buy it and take a lot yeah yes you can and and you know I think they they did such a good job at it's, I don't know how many remedies are in there but formula is about 16 and it really does deal with with such a wide range of conditions and the remedies are all gentle enough that as a homeopath I feel comfortable saying to any mother that they can get any one of those remedies and it's certainly not going to cause harm and you might be pleasantly surprised at the results that you get <laughs> especially the the teething formulas I mean I know having worked in the pharmacy it's like teething is probably the the number one reason for moms having come to the the homeopathic dispensary and at the colic pharmacy. i'm sure colic is another one definitely but i mean there we can go down the the diet rabbit hole as well and what the kid can tolerate and what not and what lies behind the colic and what the yeah. mom might be eating my last question is is there anything that you won't treat or that you like hang on you need to see a specialist and come back when you're on a on an allopathic medicine um wow unless someone's bleeding profusely <laughs> okay. and yes you've probably seen lots of jokes about sort of um I think they're mostly English someone sort of bleeding to death on a table and a homeopath leaning over them going no don't worry just have these sugar pills <laughs> uh, we're not going to do that because that would be causing harm but no I don't think there's anything that we won't venture having a go at but obviously within reason mm. and many of the advanced conditions as I said before we really like working with other specialists the trick is just finding specialists who are willing to work with us mm. But that's why in, in our practice, and it's maybe something that, that I really appreciate, like while we're doing the research, while we're studying, it's, it's, it's painful. And you really just sort of want to get out there and you're wondering, what is the purpose? But certainly one of the things that, that having to have done research elicited in me was now I'm not afraid to do research about compounds and disease processes and seeing what is the best course of action for a patient. So, you know, we'll, we'll see pretty much anyone assess the case and if we can't I don't want to say solve the case or, or necessarily bring about healing because we have many cancer patients that we see in our practice and we'll never in a million years claim to be able to resolve their cancers mm. but we can certainly do so much to support them and I think that's also what what sometimes in the medical field we forget is is you know, ultimately we are there to support the patient in the best way possible. And if that brings about complete cure, well, 
that's great. Um, but it, it doesn't always. It In doesn't fact, it always. often it often doesn't. Exactly. Maybe even more often than not, it doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think I'm seeing so much autoimmunity in my practice and I always feel so grateful for my pain-free body when I go home at night. But I think that's an arena where people are managing or living alongside something mm. on a ride and all you can do is support them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes we support them brilliantly. Thank you so much for your time and your insight and your collaborative energy. And I hope that this interview inspires other Practitioners on both sides of the line. <laughs> if we're the dark side, I'm not sure I want to call you guys the light side. but The other side. The other side. The other side. Yeah, I think that all these sides need to integrate and connect more. But Absolutely. like you said, there's, there's so much we don't know and nobody holds all the answers and all our patients are different. Mm. This was fun. Thank yeah. you so much, Scott. Such a pleasure. Thank you. With heart. Out the sky